Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Last week, we hosted a symposium bringing together contributors to The Battle for the Constitution, a website that features essays exploring current issues from a constitutional perspective. The site is a joint project from the National Constitution Center and The Atlantic. Today, we're sharing part one of the symposium, a conversation on the constitutional dimensions of policing and protests. National Constitution Center President Jeffrey Rosen was joined by former Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey, as well as Freedom of Assembly scholar John Inazu and policing expert Tracy Mears. Here's Jeff. Professor Mears, Chief Ramsey, and Professor Inazu, thank you all so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Let's jump right in. Tracy Mears, you have written so powerfully over the years that we need to answer the question of what is policing for? And you have taught us that policing is most effective when it is for legitimacy, trust building, and procedural fairness. Tell us more about that council and how it applies to our current vexation of the past few months. Sure, Jeff. Thanks so much. Um, So as I'm sure you'll also hear from Chief Ramsey, the task force on which we sat, um, Chief Ramsey was actually co-chair of President Obama's task force um, with Laurie Robinson. The first pillar of our report looked to the importance of establishing public trust and legitimacy as a key way of understanding the the purpose of policing and how it should be carried out. Um, we said a couple of things in, in that report in the first pillar. The first is that um, policing agencies and the members of those agencies who carry it out ought to think of themselves as guardians of the communities that they serve rather than warriors. And so the idea that they would be warriors against crime and that anything that they do to reduce crime would be self-justifying is not is wrong. It's inconsistent with promoting uh, trust and legitimacy. Uh, and another thing that we said that I think is relevant to the current moment is that in order to achieve these ideas of, of trust and legitimacy and procedural fairness, it's incredibly important for agencies to acknowledge their role in the past in wrongdoing and discrimination and the and what they're also doing doing currently. And I think one of the ways to understand what we're seeing in terms of demonstrations and uprisings is that people are forcing the issue publicly. I'm, I'm sure John is also going to be talking about that too in terms of demonstrations and, and free speech are forcing the issues of having this reckoning take place. Um, and, and our attempt to refashion, um, turn around, or even transform um, policing as we know it. Um, you know, there's a lot to say um, about how to get to the there that people are talking about right now from here. But I think to start with those um, initial comments, I think, is, is, is just where I'll start. Well, that is a great place to start, and thank you for it. And Chief, maybe you can uh, amplify and also tell us how to get there. It's an extraordinarily difficult time for policing and for America, given this fraught climate. How can we get to the place that you and Tracy have both identified, a place of trust and legitimacy and procedural fairness? And concretely, you know, from the officer's perspective, how would you persuade officers and also citizens to 
help us get there in this current climate? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me uh, tonight. Uh, I couldn't agree more with, uh, with Tracy. Uh, how do we get there? That's an interesting question, and I'll, I'll answer it maybe in a little bit of a different way, not being a lawyer or a constitutional scholar or just a cop. So I, I want to look at it from a police officer's perspective or at least a police chief's uh, perspective. Um, you know, we've been talking about trust and legitimacy, and as Tracy mentioned, that was the very first pillar, and that was for a reason. Because without trust and legitimacy, nothing else really happens. I mean, you really can't get anything else accomplished if you don't have the trust of the people you serve. And if they don't see you as being legitimate, a person who really has not only the legal authority, but, uh, you know, the moral authority to be able to tell them uh, what to do. And I've given that some thought. You know, I've participated in a lot of conversations recently, especially because of some of the horrific things that we've seen on television relating to police officers and use of force. And I hear police chiefs, and I've done this myself, um, use the term, well, you know, uh, vast majority of our officers are good. I do believe that. And it's just a few bad apples that are causing the problems. Well, apples fall from a tree. And if you have a lot of bad apples, you need to check the tree to make sure it's not diseased. You need to prune the tree so that in the future, uh, you'll produce more good apples than you do bad apples. I mean, and I think that's what we have to do in policing and stop making excuses. There are systemic issues that exist in our profession and we'll never gain the trust and legitimacy in the eyes of people unless we acknowledge those, those problems, those issues, and really work toward correcting them. Is there racism in policing? Absolutely there is. But why wouldn't it be? It is. It's everywhere else in our society. And that's where we draw from. Doesn't mean that we can't take steps to, to try to fix it. But, you know, to try to deny that we don't have a problem with with racism, with implicit bias and things of this nature uh, is, in my opinion, uh, ridiculous. Um, uh, power and authority. We a lot of police officers do abuse their power and authority. But stop and think about it for a minute. We hire 20 and 21 year olds. We give them a badge, we give them a gun, we put them in a, a real nice Crown Vic with lights and sirens, and then we wonder why we have problems. Out of 700 or 800 hours of training that a recruit gets in the police academy, how many hours are devoted toward dealing with the issue of, of how you handle power and authority that's just been given to you? The academies that I have been in, the answer is zero, absolutely none. And we need to talk about that, and not in the terms of what we've seen on these viral videos. It's the little stuff that, to me, uh, prevents us from gaining the kind of trust and legitimacy we need. Parking in a no parking zone when you're not on a call for service, uh, for an example. Running a red light. Uh, why? Because you can, as opposed to actually going on a call. The same laws that we ticket and cite people for, we violate. And so if we do that and we do it on and, and, and people see that, it certainly starts to, it does erode the trust and the legitimacy that we all need. Truthfulness. I mean, we've had police officers that are on a Brady list, which means they can't testify in court. We have uh, police officers uh, look at the Laquan McDonald uh, uh, shooting. It wasn't, I'm not talking about the shooting, the reports that officers submitted 
that were totally inconsistent with the video evidence that was there. I mean, it, you, you have to be able to, integrity means everything. Integrity is one of the core values that as police, we have to live by. And so when we talk about legitimacy and trust, you know, an eight hour training in fair and impartial policing is not going to change that. Nor will a, a, a training in procedural justice change that. Your behavior changes. We have to change the way we think, the way we act. And we have to create a new culture where we're holding one another accountable in policing. We shouldn't need a video to, to, to tell us that something on the street was, was not appropriate, was wrong. The officers at the scene know it. And they need to be able to intervene, not just in the major cases like in the George Floyd uh, situation, but even that minor case where you're sitting in a car and your partner's driving and he blows the red light and you're sitting there and you say, why'd you do that? Well, you know, no, we don't violate the law. We enforce laws. We don't violate them. We don't violate that, violate the law. That's a duty to intervene as well. And so it's the small stuff as well as the big stuff. And when we change that, then we start to change culture. Then we start to change attitudes that people have toward us. I mean, there are obstacles in a way, unions and all that sort of thing. But there's a lot of things that we can do. And if we don't do it, someone's going to do it for us. It's either going to be through legislation or it's going to be uh, the courts will decide for us. That should not happen. Police leaders need to step up and they need to do the things that they have to do. We need to have the tough, difficult, embarrassing conversations that we need to have to remove the veil and, and, and deal with these issues and deal with them uh, and do it as fast as we possibly can and, and just change the way we were viewed in this country. Uh, I'm sorry to kind of go on and on about that, but um, I, I just think that if we don't do that first, then the other things will never really take root. Wow, what a powerful statement of the need for departments to enforce self-accountability and to ensure that a culture of obedience to the law is pervasive and it's very galvanizing. And thank you for sharing it. Uh, John Anazu, there's much to ask you, but you've written a bunch of really phenomenal pieces for the Battle for the Constitution site about the First Amendment right of assembly and petition. And I can't help sharing, if this isn't a, a bad technological experiment, your amazing essay for the interactive constitution. So I'm going to try to do share screen right now. And friends, here we go. And I'm going to share. And look, um, if I haven't told you, uh, friends who are watching, about the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution. It will blow your mind. We're going to click on the First Amendment. We'll click on the Assembly and Petition Clause. And then here we have John Anazu and Bert Newborn nominated by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society with a thousand words about what they agree the core assembly and petition right means, and then separate statements by John and Bert about what they disagree about. And multiply that by all 80 clauses of the Constitution. It is an astonishing learning resource that's gotten 30 million hits since it launched in 2015 and is just an endless source of, of, of learning. So, so, John, in your essay, both your common statement and the separate statement, you say the Supreme Court really hasn't decided an assembly and petition case since uh, the early 1980s and has relegated assembly cases to free speech doctrine, which has watered down the right. Um, I'm going to stop sharing screen now so everyone can see you. But um, you also have argued in your uh, Atlantic pieces 
that under well-established law, local authority and law enforcement can restrict assemblies that threaten imminent incitement to lawbreaking and violence. You say there's a good case to be made that Tiki Torch marches in Charlottesville, Virginia, transgressed those bounds in 2019. This is a lot to throw out you, but everyone is, I'm sure, wondering, as, as I am, are there cases ever since the protests of George Floyd's murder began uh, where the police response has violated uh, constitutional grounds? And I'll just start by asking you about whether we think what happened in Lafayette Square was consistent with the First Amendment or not, and then you can expand out from there. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Jeff, and it's great to be with all of you. Uh, easy answers to those questions. Yes, there have been cases, and uh, no, Lafayette Square was not in any way in accordance with the First Amendment. Let me take a step back, though, and situate this and, and just try to explain why this is complicated. And I think there's both a constitutional and a criminal law dimension to this. So start with the the constitutional dimension. You referred to the right of assembly and petition, which is how we've laid it out in the, the series of the National Constitution Center. But actually, and importantly, these are two distinct rights. There's the right of assembly and there's the right to petition the government. And about 120 years ago, the Supreme Court got that wrong and conflated the two into one right, assembly for purposes of petitioning the government. If that's right, then the assembly right is actually quite narrow. If you can only assemble to petition the government, there's not much assembling happen. It turns out the Supreme Court was wrong. A couple generations of scholars were wrong. Actually, the assembly right is more robust. It's not limited to petition. But in the meantime, Supreme Court doctrine introduced concepts, including the right of association in 1958, and then really a free speech kind of framework to address protests and other gatherings in the 1970s. And the aggregate result of those doctrinal interventions means that the fullness of the right of assembly has really been forgotten in constitutional terms. So the protections of the group are relegated to this right of association, which does actually quite different work. And in the protest space, we resolve this fully under free speech doctrine. We talk about things like time, place, and manner restrictions and, and ample means of alternative communication. But when you reduce protest to just speech, you miss actually quite a bit of what ha what's happening in the protest. All the other expressive dimensions, protesters express through silence, they express through solidarity, they express through moving or not moving and all kinds of things. And when you just focus on speech, you miss all of that. And unfortunately, constitutionally, that's where we've gone. So that's one side of the equation that's really hard. And then the other side on the criminal law side is how protests are govern governed largely through laws against unlawful assembly. It makes sense that the corollary to assembly is unlawful assembly. The challenge with unlawful assembly is it's called it's what's called an inchoate crime. It's a partially completed offense, like an attempt that points toward a target offense of usually riot in most jurisdictions. And so what law enforcement has to do on the ground is discern or figure out when a peaceful assembly inches toward something that's not peaceful or that's unlawful that then inches toward a riot. That's incredibly hard to do, especially in very dynamic situations like protest situations. And yet uh, law enforcement is tasked with the responsibility of knowing the jurisdiction specific terms that comprise an unlawful assembly and having to know when an assembly moves from peaceful to unlawful and pointing toward a riot. And, and it turns out that in many parts of the country, we just have, don't have very good training on how to, how to discern that at the local level compounded further by the fact that local jurisdictions define these differently. So where I live in St. Louis, if protesters march from St. Louis City into 
the suburbs as they do, they might encounter three or four different unlawful assembly restrictions with different requirements, different standards, different minimal numbers of people to violate the offense. And it's very difficult to figure out how a large group of people can comply with those all at once. So then let's finally turn to Lafayette Square, which as, as someone who writes on both the right of assembly, but also religion and other issues, the, the 40 minutes of Lafayette Square were just astounding to watch. Um, part of, I think, what we need to mention here is that protests are, by their nature, expressive, and the responses to protests are also expressive. So there's always something happening and signaling in the way that protesters engage and law enforcement responds to protesters. So in Lafayette Square, we had the president of the United States directing the the disbanding of a peaceful protest with all kinds of law enforcement, including military assets. You had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs walking down the streets of Washington and the expressive dimensions of that collectively, then tied to the forcible removal of priests at St. John's Church. Uh, the, the collective expressive experience of Lafayette Square was, was just stunning and uh, and, it, and it has a lot of consequences expressively and substantively and symbolically. So I, I was, um, I mean, it's almost, it's, it's even still hard to process sort of what happened there. In some ways it was fully in line with what the president has done from the claims about the size of the inauguration crowds to the desire to have a military parade a few years ago that didn't go anywhere. But the idea of a spectacle for the sake of the president that comes at the cost of other freedoms. But we, I think we saw all of that in Lafayette Square. Fascinating. So much to unpack. And uh, Rebecca, of course, is the assignment editor, but I would love to read your close legal analysis of the merits of the lawsuits against the police in Lafayette Square and how they might play out. Absolutely fascinating. Um, Tracy Mears, um, and first of all, friends, thank you for the great questions in the Q&A box. I see them and I'm going to try to introduce as many of them as possible. And several of you have asked about defunding the police, including Kenneth Davis, who asks, how would you define it? And I'll add to that, Tracy, do you support it? How should we think about this claim, defund the police? Yeah, um, so I'd say thanks for that question. I'm on record, as many law professors are who write publicly, um, as having written a piece in the Boston Review in 2017, so three years ago, in which I said, I'm quoting myself, uh, policing as we know it must be abolished before it can be transformed. So take me literally. <laughs> and um, I said it in 2017 and I believe it today. Um, but let me tell you what that means for me. Um, in that piece, I was talking about understanding policing as a public good. And it might seem strange that someone who sat on President Obama's task force 21st century policing, who there are some folks um, today who would call that work reformers' reforms disparagingly, not understanding that at the time we believed, and I still believe, we're at the forefront and how to make policing better. And that if every agency in the country had adopted our 59 recommendations, it would be um, much improved. That said, um, I still think <laughs> that policing as we know it should be abolished because we don't center the public good of safety for everyone and certainly the most fragile communities. We're going to have, after we speak, 
um, a panel of folks talking about COVID. And the same communities that experience high rates of violence are the same communities that are fragile and brittle with respect to their COVID response and have high rates of um, infant mortality and high rates of people experiencing homelessness and low rates of education and low, high rates of joblessness. I can go on, right? All of these things, um, the incidents and exposure to the criminal legal system are the same people and places that experience high rates of violence. And we have sent historically the same response to those places and expect that to produce a public good. So in the Boston Review piece, I explain what I think is necessary in order to really think about that. And we said this actually in the president's task force, our two overarching um, recommendations were that the criminal justice system had to have a fundamental re-examination, which hasn't occurred since 1967 in the Johnson administration. And that was our first recommendation, 0.1. And our recommendation, 0.2, was that um, there needed to be a serious consideration of how the institutions of criminal justice work with community organizations to achieve public safety. So if you think about that, that's my jumping off point for this conversation about defunding. Um, that's what people are talking about, I think. Um, they're talking about restriction, um, uh, uh, minimizing the footprint of very harsh um, criminal justice approaches that actually don't support safety. This gets back to the conversation that Chief Ramsey and I were talking about with respect to legitimacy and public trust, because we know that when you do promote those ideas, um, people are more likely to voluntarily comply with the law and it's consistent with violence reduction, right? Um, and then they're talking about, um, you know, having less funds for that and investing in other strategies, um, institutions of the state and or private organizations that can do this work. Um, I wrote a piece recently with Tom Tyler and Philip Atiba Goff in um, NBC Think, um, explaining four ways, and I'll just review them quickly, that one could think about defunding that are all not mutually exclusive. So the first I've already mentioned, you could take policing agencies as we know them and um, restrict the number of people who are armed, right? That's the idea of um, reducing the footprint of armed first responders. I think that's what many people are concerned about. So that's one thing you can do. Um, you can have much more specialization of um, policing agents, of people who work on within agencies, you know, that is not mutually exclusive from the reduction of folks who are armed. You can have a lot more collaboration um, between policing agencies and community um, organizations, community-based organizations that do violence work. And we've seen this across the country in Stockton, California, in Richmond, in New York City, the Life Camp, but Erica Ford, Devon Bogan, Upswell in Los Angeles. I could go on. Um, you could have much more civilianization. The point is, is there are lots of options for thinking about how to take what we've got now um, and change its shape in a way that's much more consistent with 
what I think many people are looking for. And I think personally um, is consistent with what we called for five years ago. So I guess I just don't think that what I said in 2017 is that is fundamentally inconsistent with what we said in the president's task force. Um, and I also think that all of that work is a part of the call that Tom and I were asking for in our Atlantic piece from last week. Fascinating. Chief Ramsey, do you see things the same way? Do you think that calls to defund the police could be consistent with the approach that you and Tracy Mears took on President Obama's task force uh, or, or, or not? Do you understand the defund the police movement differently? What do you think of it? And uh, we have several questions asking about concrete suggestions for how you think police should help police themselves. Mel Schuster says the police seem unable to police themselves and continue to commit unconscionable acts during unwarranted arrests. How does police culture change and by what institutions? How long will it take? And I'll just throw in one final thing. You and I uh, at the Constitution Center and our great team with Curry Sautner have this policing and the Constitution program. Might we work together with that program to help police officers embrace self-accountability? Defund the police means different things to different people. I've heard all kinds of things when it comes to defunding police. But what I hear probably more often is that people are looking at reallocating some resources currently given to police and then channel those resources elsewhere. Let's say community-based social services, for an example, for people that are responding to people in a mental health crisis or maybe substance abuse issues, things of that nature. I don't disagree with any of that. But I would just caution us in, in, in to really, you know, I've been in city government for a long time. And this is the time of year where, you know, cities traditionally just go through your budget trying to grab any money that hadn't been spent to fill holes in other areas. Right now you've got COVID-19 and cities are really, really in bad shape financially. So grabbing money is now under this whole defund the police thing is part of it. Follow the money. If the money's being taken to channel into social services, make sure that's where it goes. Because the reason police have these responsibilities is because at two or three o'clock in the morning, there's no one else available. It's police. Social workers aren't, aren't out there. Substance abuse counselors aren't out there. And so they're going to have to staff up considerably to have people that are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to be able to respond. And even then, not every call you go to is going to be one where a social worker is going to be able to handle it because some of these calls are a little dangerous. And so police could be in a secondary role, not in the primary role. So I need, we need to just think about what, we, what we're saying when we say defund the police. Reality, uh, police budgets, for the most part, at least in the three cities I've worked in, anywhere from 90 to 96 percent of your budget is personnel costs. That's salaries, that's pension, that's Healthcare, that's all that. There's not a whole lot left. And so you're not going to be able to significantly take money away without impacting your numbers and actually losing uh, personnel. That may or may not be a bad thing. I'm just saying that people need to understand that that's what's called for. As far as police being able to police themselves, one of the recommendations in our task force report was for civilian oversight. Uh, there are different models out there. None of them are perfect. Uh, but I do believe there needs to be oversight for a couple of reasons. One, it is difficult to police yourself, um, quite frankly. And, and plus, people don't trust that we could do it. If we did it perfectly, people would not trust that we're actually, you know, be doing it in a very objective way. So having some oversight 
of police, I think is essential. It's necessary. And I, I do think that many departments or, or uh, cities are moving uh, in that direction. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I'm not one that, that likes to use terms like, you know, abolish or defund or whatever. I, I think that there are ways in which we can talk about this without using extreme language, because that turns people off. It scares people. And we need to find solutions to these problems. And I think part of the problem we have in our society in general in America right now is you've got the extreme left and the extreme right. And those are the voices being heard. And, you know, a lot of people are right there in the middle. And so we need to find ways we can come together to fix these problems. And I think it's a way of doing it. You don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. I think there's a way of doing it without compromising public safety. There's real crime going on. Uh, I, in 2020, to think you can disarm some police, in my opinion, is, is not realistic when this country averages 14 to 15,000 murders a year. Uh, Philly right now, rolling into uh, July, close to 200 murders. New York is, I mean, there are cities across America that are up in violent crime. I would like to see that one day. It just ain't today. And so we need to think about how we transition. If we want to move in that direction, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But how do we get there? And we need to be very thoughtful. So at the same time, we're not jeopardizing public safety, but we are transforming the way in which public safety is delivered to people. That is very powerful advice, and we are standing ready here at the NCC to host the discussions with you about how to create civilian oversight in ways that will be effective in just the ways you've described. Uh, John and Azu, lots of questions, including S. Miller, who asks, are you intending to justify lawlessness as protected under the First Amendment? Some in the press refuse to call rioting and looting as outside of the lawful bounds, and maybe take that question as an opportunity to tell us where the line should be drawn. You have a great piece where you argue that legislature should only apply unlawful assembly to inchoate actions that contemplate forceful and violent lawbreaking. With respect to nonviolent lawbreaking, law enforcement officials may sometimes need to wait until an act occurs or is clearly about to occur before they can intervene and arrest officers. And then I'll just ask for specifics. Are there any cases in the recent protests of the past month or so where police have legitimately responded with force uh, against unlawful acts. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think one of the complications here goes back to the nature of unlawful assembly provisions and how they aren't consistent across all states and jurisdictions. So some unlawful assembly provisions say that you uh, must advocate for force or violence in order to be squelched. And others say if you advocate for any kind of law breaking, then you, you engage in an unlawful assembly. So that's a matter... That's a legislative matter. If you don't like the law, the legislature needs to change it. But in jurisdictions that say any advocacy of lawbreaking subjects you to an unlawful assembly charge, then if you say we're going to trespass or we're going to block the street, then you're subject to an unlawful assembly. In jurisdictions that say we're going to wait till the threat of force or violence, there's more breathing space. But I think that maybe the broader issue is whenever you get a lot of people together in an emotional context, in a dynamic protest space, there is going to be some kind of risk for instability. And law enforcement, I think, engages with that, usually with some awareness of that. And there are ways to do this, to allow that breathing space, to allow that risk before it gets out of control. Sometimes it means allowing for some nonviolent law breaking, like some trespass. Or, and sometimes these are coordinated with law enforcement in ways that 
are, are, are quite safe. Um, but w- when that flips, and it can flip very quickly, especially at night when situations become extremely dynamic, and then law enforcement have to figure out how they protect themselves and how they protect others in the environment. And that becomes incredibly messy and incredibly complex. So have, have there been instances where law enforcement has legitimately used violence uh, in protest situations where riots have broken out or violence has been occurring? Of course there have. That, that's, that's happened in, in a number of these protest situations. Much harder is how do you constrain and convey the nature of that violence uh, and how do you minimize it? So think about a, a wide, broad protest space physically. And if there is an act of violence occurring in one part of a city block, if the police declare an unlawful assembly and say you have to disperse, how far does that order reach? Does it reach across all of the blocks, including the peaceful protesters over here? How long does that dispersal order last? Does it last for an hour until things are settled down or does it go all night? And these are the kinds of things that, uh, yes, there is a proper response to violence that should limit and constrain violence. Yes, law enforcement should be doing that. But the nature and scope of those restrictions have to be thought through. And I think often we collectively aren't giving enough guidance to those on the ground to make those decisions in as minimally a disruptive way as possible. As always, you're reminding us it's it's complicated, but uh, by, by carefully drawing these distinctions, we can think our way through it. Well, it's time for what are essentially closing statements in this completely fascinating panel. There's so many great questions in the Q&A box. I'll just note uh, Lillian Brooks says, Tracy, love the question of starting with what's the purpose of the police? This rings true to me as a former juvenile justice administrator. This has brought on a heightened uh, result of the school to prison pipeline. Police are the disciplinarians in the schools and ultimately bring kids to the juvenile court system. Have you thought about this? And Jim Stewart amplifies on that. Police are called on two varied incidents that they can't be expected to handle. How would the needs of the public be best handled by various providers. You can answer as you please, but Tracy, I think I'll just broadly ask you, what what, what do you want to leave our audience with? And can you identify the most constructive area of reform in this extraordinarily vexatious and difficult time that you're involved with or that you want to call our attention to? Yeah, I think both of those questions call to mind something that Chief Ramsey had already mentioned, which is that police are available 24-7, 365 days of the year. And they are asked by municipal government leaders to be the catch-all, even in a context in which they're not adequately trained for it, and they know that they're not. You know, the current police chief of Chicago, who came from Texas, um, or I guess superintendent in Chicago, it's not chief, um, you know, as has made a, a, a statement that I, I think I've seen on social media a lot where he's like, you know, we're asked to do all these things. We don't really want to do all of these things. And yet, you know, we, we continue to do these things. And that's why I asked in the Atlantic piece, piece with my colleagues, can we just talk about what police are for? Because police say that what they're for is public safety, but we know that there are a lot better ways to achieve public safety than simply sending armed first responders to all of these incidents. And we also know that the state, at least I do, needs to play a critical role in providing public safety. Because if we simply take policing as we know it from these most fragile communities, um, it's going to be a disaster. So we have to really think about what we're doing um, carefully as we get 
there from here. You asked me what I think is the most important thing to do. I, I always hate answering that question. Um, because I feel like you should do so many things all at once. So how about starting with the president's task force report? But here's one thing I think that um, people don't think about. Um, and in a, in a report that I did with, again, Philip Atiba Goff, Tom Tyler, Elizabeth Hinton, who's a historian and the executive director of the Justice Collaboratory, Carolyn Sarnoff, called Reimagining Public Safety, we um, pointed to one thing that policing agencies really need to do, and that's tell the truth. We really need to think about this historical approach to what policing has been so we know where we're going. And um, I guess the last thing I'll say, Jeff, that I'll leave your listeners with is that if we do achieve true public safety and reimagining policing, I believe then we will actually fulfill the promise of reconstruction, uh, thinking about a conversation that you and I had four or five years ago, I think almost today, actually, in um, at Aspen, which is, you know, there are a bunch of people who have been denied, you know, the, the true promise of citizenship, which is safety. Um, and that is a legacy of the, of our inability to, to really achieve reconstruction. So I really do hope we get it right this time. Wow. So moving to hear you recall that conversation on the promise of reconstruction at the Constitution Center uh, behind the fake background behind me now is this amazing exhibit on the Civil War and Reconstruction, the battle for freedom and equality. And you've just reminded us that the promise of those Reconstruction Amendments, that's what's at stake in this current debate. And we must work together to fulfill them. Chief, t take it wherever you like. Uh, but uh, I, I'm curious, among other things about as Tracy said, the President Obama's task force report is out there. Is that getting any traction in this extraordinarily yeah. complicated time? And what makes you optimistic about the debate? What's actually breaking through? And what for you are the promising areas of reform? Well, believe it or not, uh, the report is like been resurrected to an extent, uh, because now departments are reaching out to try to find something that serves as a framework for change. And I think the report, even though it's um, well, five years old now, it's still uh, relevant today. Um, you asked about a couple things that, uh, you know, could be done. Um, one, Tracy uh, touched on, and so have you, and that is helping police officers have a better understanding of history. And, um, and I think about the National Constitution Center and the program um, Policing in a More Perfect Union that uh, myself and Carrie Sautner and, and others um, put together as an idea of being able to expose police officers that, I mean, they weren't alive in the 60s, the, the, the 50s, even the 70s in some cases when you think about it. Um, and, and so they don't understand the history of policing. And when I had my first visit at the, to the National Constitution Center and learned about the educational program where you're tracing the history of America from the Declaration till today. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we trace the history of policing during that same time frame? Now, granted, there weren't organized police forces back in the uh, late 18th century. Uh, you had slave catchers and you had other types of activities taking place that one could call some form of policing or law enforcement. But 
uh, uh, that aside, it would just be an interesting way of tracking the history of policing as America as America has evolved, so as policing. And when you look at policing, and for an example, the civil rights era, I mean, as as the marchers on what's now known as Bloody Sunday came across the Pettus Bridge, who was waiting for them on the other side? Police. And so when you look at policing historically, it's very clear. Police have not always stood on the right side of justice, especially as we define justice today. Now, you may not have been alive during that period of time, but you need to understand that's the baggage as a profession that we carry in some communities and not in other communities. And I think that's important to understand because you need to, you need to know why that tension is there. You need to know why the, 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 the mistrust is there. And it's not just about what happened in the 60s. There's enough stuff happening today that's not right. It just adds to that. But history is a way of being able to put it in a context where I think we can educate officers. The one thing I think, if there's one area in policing, and we've got a lot of things that I think are very positive in terms of you know, service and, and courage and all those sort of things, but empathy. And, and, and I think what, what happens there, and it certainly has happened to me, it's hard not to become jaded over time. And you have to fight that so that you can still feel. I've often said, we'll be successful if police if we can teach police to see policing through the eyes of those being policed, we are all coming at it from different perspectives. And if we can see policing through the eyes of those being policed, then I think it goes a long way toward starting to kind of turn that, uh, turn that uh, ship. And, uh, the other thing, which I think is important, and then I'll, I'll be quiet, it was our very first uh, recommendation, which was an overarching recommendation, and that is to look at the entire criminal justice system. I know the focus right now is on policing, but I think it would be a mistake if we left it there. We need to look at the entire system. We need to look at those drivers of crime. What are those, you know, housing, education, uh, poverty, all those kinds of things that are drivers of crime. We have an opportunity here to do all that because it's not just about police. It's about prosecution. It's about courts. It's about corrections. It's about reentry. It's about the entire system. Fixing one part and not touching the other is going to is is problematic. It's not going to result in what people believe uh, would be an, uh, a favorable outcome in terms of, of looking at uh, criminal justice. So I think those things are important. You know, police aren't the only ones that uh, carry biases. Uh, you know, I, I I often think whenever I see that statue of Lady Justice uh, with the scales and she's wearing a blindfold. Well, the reality is Lady Justice sees quite well, and even she has implicit bias uh, when it comes to sentencing. And so we need to not, you know, BS ourselves into thinking that it's just the police. The entire system needs to be looked at. We need to take serious action, but it needs to be done in a way where we're not compromising public safety. And John, one last thing, because I love what you were saying about, you know, the uh, demonstrations and so forth. The last major demonstration I handled in Philly was the, during the Occupy movement. I mean, it was Occupy everywhere, right? But we had Occupy Philly too. It went on for about three months, maybe a little bit longer. Every single day, every single roll call, we started the roll call by having the sergeant read the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to the officers who were assigned. These folks are protesters, but they're not your enemy. They have every right to be 
petitioning their government to be doing whatever it is that they're doing, as long as it's lawful, obviously, not breaking windows and so forth. They're not your enemies. I'm sensitive to that because had it not been for the courage of protesters in the 1960s, I never would have had the opportunity to serve as police chief in Washington, D.C. or commissioner of Philadelphia. And so that's just reality. And we need to respect that right because that constitutional right for protesters, that's your right too. And you need to understand that. Our job is to help them facilitate that, not get in the way of it. But at the same time, have that balance where folks that just want to go to the bank and cash a check ought to be able to do so without having, uh, without being impeded. And so that's the balance. That's the challenge for policing. But um, I think we can get it right. Wow. What a moving, galvanizing uh, closing statement from the vision of reading the First Amendment to police officers to your call to see policing through the eye of those being policed and your incredibly moving call for empathy. Thank you for all that, Chief, and looking forward to our continued work together. John, the last word is to you on this really memorable panel. Uh, so much to say, but I'll just add to the mix Margaret Clark's question. Have you considered the original Constitution was not wrong? And maybe because they lived through riots and protests, they understood the difference and risks back then, which is why it was written as it was, and whatever changes that were made in the 70s, as you discussed, should be retracted. Your final thoughts on the First Amendment and Taser. Hopefully, uh, my first book, The Forgotten Right of Assembly, argues for just that. So yes, I'm all for recovering the right of peaceable assembly as uh, as written in the text of the Constitution. Uh, I want to, you know, in, in closing, I'd love to pick up on a couple of Chief Ramsey's points because I think they point to a broader issue that all of us are probably thinking about right now. One is empathy, and the other is the, the necessity of working across the aisle, whatever the aisle is. And and if if you're just on social media, that aisle looks insurmountable. Those people are evil, and you're morally right, and that's it, full stop. And that's just not going to work. Right. I mean, maybe it works if you grab all the power and suppress the people you don't like, but that doesn't really seem like a very hopeful experiment going forward. And so I think we're left with the alternative of pursuing empathy and common ground. And in that common ground has to be the First Amendment. The First Amendment only works if it's a right for everybody, if it protects my speech and your speech, the speech I like, the speech I don't like, the protests I like, the protests I don't like. And, and I think this is it's an intuitive point, but it's a pretty accessible point. If, if you can, for everyone on this call, give me the political issue that you care about the most, and I can point you to somewhere in this country where a peaceful demonstration uh, for that issue is being unlawfully suppressed in some way. That's a problem. and It's a problem that all of us should care about, and we should all care about speech and protest and expression. And so I think one tangible thing that we can do, well, two things. One, we need to, I think, dissipate some of the social media voices that, that pretend that there is no common ground here because there is common ground and a lot of us feel it. But then second, we need to start cross advocating. So I am most I am most impressed when I see advocacy for First Amendment rights that protect somebody's group that they actually don't like or they disagree with. And that's been part of our country and we need to see more of that going forward. I think when you get outside of the the Twitter echo chambers that's actually happening. And we just need to elevate that more. I think what you're doing, Jeff, the, the work that you're doing at the National Constitution Center and the work that I think many of uh, the rest of us are trying to do uh, is toward that end. But it's a really important goal because we're not going to see the kinds of changes that Tracy and Chief Ramsey are talking about if we don't actually find a way to work uh, in greater numbers and across ideological barriers to get there. Thank you 
so much, Tracy Mears, uh, Chief Ramsey, and John Amazu for a memorable panel and discussion of pleasing the Constitution and the First Amendment. It's been an honor to moderate it. I'm so grateful to you for joining and really hope to continue this conversation in all ways possible. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. This episode was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, and Tanea Tauber. This program is made possible through generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. It was presented in partnership with The Atlantic and in conjunction with the Battle for the Constitution website. So if you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please check out the website at theatlantic.com projects. We'll link to the site and to the panelists' essays on our episode webpage. If you'd like to hear more from the symposium, please tune in next week when we'll share part two, a conversation on the constitutional issues raised by coronavirus. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.